0: North Roanoke, if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please join me in turning to Habakkuk. It's one of the minor prophets, and if you're having trouble finding it, that's certainly okay. It's one of the smaller books of the Bible, sandwiched between other smaller books of the Bible, and so it's easy to flip right past it. But if you find Matthew and begin to turn backward just a few pages, you'll eventually come to Habakkuk. If you get to Nahum or Micah, or Amos, or Joel, or Jonah. You've gone too far. Habakkuk is where we'll be today. And because we're celebrating the Lord's Supper, uh, here's, here's how we'll proceed for the rest of the service. We'll, we'll have a sermon, and, and I hope uh, that the Spirit of God will use it to impact your life and to touch your life. And then I, I think we'll see how an appropriate response to today's message is for those of us who, who have trusted God Christ as our Savior and have uh, walked in baptism to come to the Lord's table together and partake of the Lord's table as his church together. And and then we're going to sing a hymn and and we'll be dismissed. Okay. Um, So if you're here this morning, you say, well, I wanted to join the church and we're not going to have an invitation time this morning. Don't worry. You'd write this on this card and make sure I or an usher get it. And I will call you even from vacation this week to talk to you about joining North Roanoke Baptist Church. We're so glad you're here. If you're a guest, this connection card in your bulletin, be sure to fill this out. Make sure an usher receives it or that I receive it. I'd love to follow up with you and say welcome. Thank you for coming to North Roanoke Baptist Church. But we will, we will close our service today by just singing and dismissing. Because I, I believe it is true that we need the Lord. It's been an interesting week in Habakkuk. Habakkuk addressed the issue of suffering. How is it that the people of God will be saved, have been saved, and yet they still suffer? We we might argue that they really suffer. That their suffering at times seems disproportionate even to that of the world. That it doesn't just rain on the just and the unjust, it seems to really rain on the just. Habakkuk is living in such a time. The Chaldeans, the enemy, is rising up and they are going to overcome the people of God. And Habakkuk asks in verse 2, How long, O Lord? So I'm going to read the entirety of Habakkuk, but skipping large sections this morning and summarizing, but we'll begin in Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk writes, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, how long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on Wickedness, yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored, literally paralyzed or numbed. And justice is never upheld, for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Verse 5, look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder. This is God speaking. Because I am doing something in your days that you would not believe If you were told it. And then verses 6 through 10, God continues to confirm that he's going to raise up the Chaldeans, which are also the Babylonians, to overtake the people of God. In verse 11, Habakkuk writes this, Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. Now hear this, But they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. Verse 12, Habakkuk writes and asks, uh, yet another question, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. But the Chaldeans are going to be ruthless and unrelenting, and they are going to catch men like fish in their nets, he tells us in verse 13 through 16. So Habakkuk asked yet another question, will they therefore empty their nets their net in which they are capturing the people of God and just empty it of of the ones they've already caught and then go catch some more? Will they continually slay nations without sparing? And then in verse 1 of chapter 2, Habakkuk says, I'm going to go up like a watchman and get the eyes and the perspective of eternity and I'm going to hear what my God will say. And then in verse 2 of chapter 2, he says, Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets. In other words, write it down. Take it to the bank. That the one who reads it may run, for the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Then in verses 5 through 20, Habakkuk records a song that God writes. It's a song of woes against the enemies of God for five sins that we'll mention later in the sermon that they've committed. What's the point? God knows they're guilty. God knows who the just and the unjust are. And he concludes, verse 20 with saying, there's going to be a day when the whole earth will know his Glory. And then in chapter 3, Habakkuk prays for this day of the Lord to come. It's a day in which the Lord is shown to be glorious, like he was at Sinai. With the earthquakes and the thunderings and powerful and avenging like he was when he led his people out of the exodus, out of slavery. That God will come. Habakkuk prays that in his wrath that God will remember mercy. And in verses 12 and 13, that's exactly what we see God's going to do. For when he tramples the nations, verse 12, he saves his people, verse 13 of chapter 3. Now look how he closes his book. Remember, he asks with, how long, O Lord? I heard in my inward parts, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. Though the fig trees should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, Though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and He has made my feet like hinds' feet, and makes me walk on high places. And then he tells us this is for the choir director on stringed instruments. It's a prayer written as a song to the Lord's. Like Nahum, Habakkuk's book is a burden. It's not just any old prophecy, it's a burden. It deals with the heavy subject of of God's judgment, but Habakkuk introduces a little bit of a twist to his burden. It's not just that God's judgment will surely come and that his salvation will surely come, and we understand that the conundrum of how both of those things are true is answered in Christ. For Christ bore our judgment, but he offered us his salvation at the same time, which we will celebrate at the Lord's table here in just a few moments. But the twist is this. Okay, we understand the judgment and the salvation, but, but when does all the suffering and heartache and hardship and distress and calamity, when does it ever stop? I've, I've given you my trust, God, and yet things just seem to get worse. You see, looking around him, the prophet sees all the violence and distress all around him. It's difficult to say precisely what he sees. Scholars are divided. Is it, as some biblical scholars say, the sins of his own people? Or is it the terrible oppression of the foreign invasion? He keeps his words as general as possible, John Selhammer tells us. Why? So that the words apply in any situation. As saints read Habakkuk down through the ages, whatever they find themselves in, they can ask with Habakkuk, how long, O Lord?" How long will the people of God be oddballs in the world? How long will we be sojourners awaiting the ultimate salvation? How long will we reap what our own sins have sown? What is the point of life if life just simply proceeds from crisis to crisis to crisis? How long, oh Lord? Habakkuk answers this question and he shows us that to ask how long, O Lord, rather than why me, O Lord, is indeed a confession of faith. Because when we ask God how long, we are trusting that indeed there will be an end and he will show up and he will deliver. You see, to exercise faith in God, we must do four things. First, we must be real with him, chapter 1. Second, we must rest in God's sovereign control when our circumstances seem to undermine His character. When the whole world is falling apart and we say, where is God in this? We've got to rest in His sovereignty. Thirdly, we must see adversity as the proving ground for faith. And finally, we must rejoice in the God of our salvation. First, we must be real with God. We've already covered in verse 2. He says, how long, O Lord... In verse 3, he reminds us, and he reminds God, as if God didn't know, that he's got to look upon iniquity and wickedness and destruction and violence and strife and contention. That was six synonyms for the same thing in one verse. What's Habakkuk trying to tell us? It's really bad, God. I'm, I'm frustrated. I'm tired. I'm weary. I'm worn down. I don't know how much more I can take. Have you ever been there? The question, how long, indicates that the wicked conduct has continued for a long time without God putting any stop to it. And it seems as though God's justice is in doubt because His judgment is long delayed, so says Baker. And how does God respond? Verse 5 of chapter 1, I'm going to show you something astonishing. It's astonishing, astonishing in the Hebrew. It's as astonishing as you can get. Very astonishing and beyond belief. God then tells them in 6 through 10, it's going to get worse. It's going to get harder. And an enemy is rising up that you can't imagine. And it's going to mock the king. And it's going to create their own version of justice. And they're going to use their own version of justice to feel like they're innocent and in putting death to death the king of kings. And this king ultimately is Christ who goes to the cross for us. And when he goes to the cross for us, he dies and bears our sin. Why? So, so we can have our best life now? No. So that we can join in his suffering on the road to Golgotha. So that we could bear our cross, take up our cross and die daily, so that the world can see that it's real. That even in the midst of the darkest valley, that if we have Christ, we have all we need, and we indeed have the answer that the world needs as well. You see, Habakkuk shows us in these verses that it's okay to be real with God about the enemy we face. The the Christian response to suffering is not what we read as we walk down Lifeway's self-help aisle. The the Christian response to suffering is not to pretend it doesn't exist and every time somebody says, how are you doing, to say, oh, I'm fine. When you're not. Which which might mean that we need to calibrate and think about when we ask someone how they're doing. Right? Right? not three minutes before you walk into worship, because you really don't have time to hear any answer other than, oh, I'm great. Habakkuk shows us that that it's okay to ask God questions. Aren't you relieved to know that you can ask God questions? That you can say to God, God, how long does this continue? How long am I going to be stuck in this? The Christian response to suffering isn't denying it, it isn't mental gymnastics, it's not new age meditation, it's not any other man-made cover-up, it is lament. There's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. We say to God exactly what we feel, and as we declare to Him what we feel, we grow deeper in our knowledge and understanding of how much we need God, because if we can't have a vital connection to God, then we have nothing at all. Jesus didn't come so we could escape reality. He came to prove he's enough even on the darkest of days. The Christian finds joy in the valley, not in denial of it. Secondly, we must rest in God's sovereign control when our circumstances seem to undermine his character. We didn't read all the verses, but in verses 12 and following, Habakkuk asks some more questions. Aren't you from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? And then Habakkuk goes on and says, they're going to gather us all up in their fishing net. How long? Will they keep on slaying the nations without ever sparing anyone? And two, the questions that Habakkuk poses about the ruthlessness of the suffering and the enemy we face, here is what God says. In verse 11, he knows who the, who the guilty are, and they will be held guilty. In chapter 2, verses 6 through 20, There is coming a day in which the guilty will be guilty of what they've done. And what have they done? They've pillaged nations. They've schemed for evil gain. They've built an entire society upon violence. They've taken liberties with the subjugated nations. And they have been idolaters. What have they been idolaters to? Their very own strength and power. Denying the power of the God who made them. And parading about the power that they had. And What does Habakkuk tell us, even as he asks these questions? Right in the middle of verse 12, he says, after he says that he's ever from everlasting, that God is holy, he says, we will not die. Even in the midst of your confession to God about the heartache and the hardship and the suffering that you face, you can say with Habakkuk, we will not die. Because he is the God from everlasting. He is the Holy One. Habakkuk isn't questioning, are you from everlasting? Are you holy? He's saying, God, since you're holy, since you're everlasting, I know I'm not going to die. But the reality of what I face right now isn't very fun. You see, when every circumstance we face suggests that God's not in control, we can still say with Habakkuk in the midst of our questions, we're not going to die, and God is not dead. Yet the final evidence of the the defeat of God's enemies at the cross is yet for the appointed time, we learn in verse 3. On the one hand, God's day hastens towards a day of vindication. Verse 3 says it's not going to fail. But on the other hand, I don't know about you, but for me, there are days that the day of the Lord seems to tarry. And what does God say? It's a day for which we must wait. You see, when our circumstances seem to undermine the character of God, God tells us, the guilty will pay, the just will surely live, and I have fixed the day. Don't evaluate the character of your good God based on what you see right now. Evaluate the character of your God based on the deliverance he's going to bring on the day that a sovereign God has fixed. Wait patiently for for that day. History is not cyclical. It's not a constant recurrence of events in futile repetition, moving from crisis to crisis to crisis. History is linear, so the Bible shows us. It is moving toward the day of the Lord and the establishment of God's kingdom. And though this message of God might not reach fruition right now, Now, it will surely happen, and Habakkuk is certain that it will take effect at the time of God's own choosing. So church, when we grow weary in the present, we must remember our sovereign God has indeed fixed a day in the future. A day is coming, a day of deliverance for God's people. But until that day, suffering still is suffering. And we have the opportunity as the people of God to see adversity and suffering and hardship as the proving ground for faith as we wait upon the Lord. Adversity is the proving ground for faith as we wait upon the Lord. Let me ask you a question. If everyone who trusted Jesus immediately received $10 million dollars, a beach house, $100,000 a year, a perfect family, wouldn't the whole world trust in Jesus? Or so it would seem. But would they actually be trusting in Jesus? How would we know? How would we know they weren't just trusting in all the fringe benefits? You see, when... When Christ saved us, he delivered us from the power of suffering over us. There's a whole world out there. When they suffer, they get mowed down and they never rise up from it. They can never move on. Life is empty. It's hopeless. But God showed us that he suffered for us to deliver us from the power of suffering over us so that as we suffer until he comes in victory, the world says, how in the world did that brother, how in the world did that sister respond in the crisis the way that she did so that the world sees that Jesus really is all that we need and that we can put our faith in Him, when the world sees us trusting Jesus in our darkest hour, then the world knows that it's real, and it's not about the fringe benefits. Is it not Jesus who tells His disciples, they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name? Or isn't it Luke who says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14.22. Or Paul who says that it is his suffering which fills up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, may I ask you? Nothing other than that our ability... To see Christ's perfect faith in the Father as He walked up Golgotha's hill is made complete as we see our brothers and sisters in Christ be willing to lay down their lives for that very same gospel by faith in that very same Father who sent His Son to bear their burdens and their sin and their suffering so that they too would take up their cross and march and die daily and walk into a world of heartache and suffering and racial injustice and a whole bunch of other things that don't make sense in our world. And as we die daily, the world is being won to our great King who confounds the wisdom of the world and sends His church out to suffer And have faith in the midst of the suffering. You see, as we take up our cross, that's when the kingdom advances. The cross of Christ means that your suffering can actually count for something, it can count for something eternal. But it's only gonna count for something eternal if we're honest about what it is it's actually suffering. It's adversity, it's heartache, it's violence, it's calamity, it's strife, it's contention, it's enemy attack. And as we finally say, church, this stuff actually happens to the people of God, then we can say, well, praise God, let's have faith. Let's have faith in the God who delivers us out of the storm, and not just out of the storm, in the midst of the storm. Verse 4 is the key verse in Habakkuk. The righteous shall live by His faith. The presumptive and the proud will not continue, but the righteous will live by faith. Faith is a firm commitment to God, an undisturbed confidence in the divine promises of His grace. Paul confirms this for us. In Galatians 3.11, he quotes from this verse. He says, it's evident that no one's justified by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Faith in what? Faith in God. Faith in God who keeps his promises and who bears our burdens to Calvary. You see, pride is satisfied only when we have things seemingly under control. Can anybody relate? I'm an ENTJ. Any of y'all done Myers-Briggs? You know what J means? I like a plan. And I do not like deviation from the plan. You know what that is? That's pride. That's arrogance. God will step into your life and ruin your plans so that you can come to a place of finding that knowing and belonging to God is enough. Habakkuk's questions don't lead him further away from God. They lead him deeper into the things of faith. He sees that the people of God will run into hard times, that the nations will invade them and overtake them. He sees it's going to rain on the just and the unjust, that there will be countless opportunities to exercise faith in God in the midst of the storm and in the darkest of days. But listen to how Habakkuk concludes his prayer in chapter 3. Verse 16. I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. Did you see what Habakkuk just said in verse 16? Did you read those words? Habakkuk had a panic attack. He couldn't breathe. His lips were trembling. He was aching in his bones. Anybody ever here had a panic attack? It feels just like a heart attack. And you know what we say about panic attacks and people who respond physiologically to the suffering and the heartache and the hardship that they face? This is what we say. Well, you must not have faith. You must not be a Christian. You must not be walking with God. Well, Habakkuk is a prophet of God who writes a book in the Bible. It's a burden. He sees all the world disintegrating around him. He sees that the people of God are suffering <clears throat> and he has a panic attack. You know what some of us need to do this morning? We need to come to God and say, God, I'm having a panic attack. I've had it. I, I don't, I don't how to do it anymore. You know what God wants to show you? You don't have to do it anymore. Because if you have God... He got everything. And he's fixed a day in which it'll all make sense. Acknowledging our despair, our panic attack, if you will, acknowledging our despair is what opens the door for faith. As long as you're a pretender, As long as you've got it all patched together on the outside and you don't ever let God get into your heart in the midst of the storm, you're missing out on the victory he intends for you to have. Because look at what Habakkuk says as he concludes his book. Although he's trembling because the enemy of God is coming, he nevertheless will exult in the salvation that he foresees. Look at verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom... And there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olives should fail and the fields produce no food. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. My is critical there. He is not just salvation He is the God who came to know you relationally and be your salvation. He is the one who offered Himself on the cross to be the bread of life, who poured out His blood and was raised on the third day, because your blood has a whole bunch of sin in it, but when the blood of the spotless Lamb of God is shed for you, you have life everlasting with Him. He is your salvation. The Lord God is my strength, verse 19, and He has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on high ground. Places You see, Habakkuk moves from suffering to rejoicing in the midst of the suffering. His suffering didn't go anywhere, right? Didn't, he didn't just move from suffering to rejoicing. He moved from suffering to rejoicing while suffering because he discovered this great truth. At the end of the day, God is all he has and God is all he needs because God is the inexhaustible source and infinite sphere of joy, The prophet's feet become like hind's feet, which is like a deer dancing on the mountaintops. Why? It is a picture of the fresh and joyous strength that we acquire in God. I don't know if you've ever seen a deer prancing about, but they prance around my garden all the time and eat my tomatoes. But but they're happy little creatures. And the point is, while he's way down there in the valley, as he recognizes that if he has God, he's got it all in spite of what's happening around him, his feet begin to dance. He begins to know the joy of the Lord because the Lord is his. And he makes him to walk on the high places. High places here means... That he's elevated above all the troubles. He's part of the ultimate triumph of the people of God over the oppression that is on all the world. You see, Habakkuk will rejoice even when it seems everything promised to the people of God is failing. Because he knows and belongs to the God who never fails. He's not just the Lord God. He's my strength. He's not just the Holy One and the Everlasting One. He's my salvation. When our strength fails, He's our strength. When we fail, oh, when we fail, He's our salvation. And so the question this morning as we come to the table is not, are you suffering? Because each and every one of you has what a brother of Christ, brother in Christ called, said to me years ago, your private pain. Everybody's got it. The question is this morning, will you let that cause you to run from God and question God in such a way that you doubt Him? Or will you allow it to question God in such a way that you say, he is mine and I am his. And I am waiting patiently for that day. As we come to the Lord's table, we confess together. Lord, I need you. Thank you for coming and for being mine. Would you pray with me? And I invite my, the deacons to prepare to serve the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven. We need you. Every hour we need you. God, I I can't express to you in words how thankful I am that a prophet of God was so real about his circumstances. God, all across this room, this morning, there's there's anxiety and suffering and heartache and hardship and questions. And God, through your prophet, you say, I am holy, I am fully aware, and I have fixed a day when it all makes sense. But God, from this day to that day, We understand that the answer to every question we could ask is ultimately, you came down so that we could belong to our God. So as we come to the table this morning, we confess that we need you. And we confess that by your grace, you found us right where we were. And we ask God for more faith that you would use us in the midst of trials and heartache and hardship so that the world who's yet to know you might be one for Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.